Good Monday. This is Ozarks at Large for February 21st, 2022. This is your public radio station, KUAF 91.3. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Kyle Kellums. Ahead this Monday, a conversation with photographer and artist Aaron Turner about his work that's on exhibit right now at Walton Art Center. It's called Yesterday Once More. And we have a new batch of archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. This week, Randy Dixon will bring sound that helps us track the career of Dr. Jocelyn Elders, Arkansas native and former United States Surgeon General. That's in our second half hour this Monday. First up today, the newly chartered Arkansas Ozarks Waterkeeper, a member of a worldwide Waterkeeper Alliance aims to keep rivers, streams, and creeks in our region clean. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich met up with several board members on the Kings River in Carroll County recently. That's where they've worked long to improve that once-impaired watershed. Lynn Welford and Glenda Ellison hike along a beautiful gravel embankment on the Kings River, surging with snowmelt this frigid Saturday morning. The turquoise-green iridescent stream used to be terribly polluted with trash, poultry farm chemicals, and industrial effluent. Today it glimmers with aquatic life, says Glenda Allison. We are standing at the confluence of the Kings River and the Osage Creek, which is its largest tributary. The um, Kings River's headwaters is high in the Boston Mountains. The Buffalo, the Kings River, the White River, and the Mulberry all have their headwaters in the same area known as Roberts Gap. And it is amazing that these, all these magnificent rivers come from the same place. The Kings River runs generally northward for 90 miles and ends in Table Rock Lake. It managed to escape being dammed in the 1950s, and so now we have this beautiful gem of a river. Allison and Lynn Walford are board members of the newly chartered Arkansas Ozarks Waterkeeper. Waterkeeper Alliance is the largest and fastest growing nonprofit focused solely on clean water. They preserve and protect water by connecting local waterkeeper groups worldwide. The waterkeeper movement was started by a band of blue collar fishermen on New York's Hudson River in 1966. The Hudson River commercial fishermen, upset that their way of life was being destroyed by urban pollution, banded together to clean up the river, which spawned a global waterkeeper alliance. Through the years, and Waterkeeper Alliance now unites more than 300 waterkeeper groups. They cover more than 2.5 million square miles of rivers, lakes, and coastal waters on six continents. Glenda Allison's also a member of the Kings River Watershed Partnership the first such watershed group to form on the Arkansas Ozarks in 2005. Members conduct water quality monitoring, educate landholders and farmers about best riparian practices to prevent stormwater stream sedimentation and phosphorus pollution. Phosphorus is a nutrient added to poultry feed. Poultry waste spread on farm fields on the Ozarks to fertilize pastures. Lynn Welford, who also works with the Kings River Watershed Partnership, serves as secretary of the newly formed Arkansas Ozarks Waterkeeper. One of the biggest challenges in this area is um, the 
uh, excess nutrients that come from animal waste. And so that's, that is, um, it causes algae, which is a visual way of knowing that there's too much um, nutrients in the, in the water. So that's, and we are wanting to do a study, a three-season study of algae growth so that we can help the ADQ, the Arkansas Department of Environmental Equality, change the way that they decide whether a waterway is impaired by algae. Because right now it's very vague and it's ineffectual. But the Kings River Watershed Partnership also hosts annual river cleanups hauling truckloads of garbage dumped into the waterway by property owners and tourists. Because of this enduring work, the Kings River water quality, a declared extraordinary waterway, has vastly improved. Well, Ford also worked with Buffalo River Watershed Alliance and another group called Ozark River Stewards to successfully shut down in 2019 an international industrial swine breeding facility permitted by the state to operate upstream of the Buffalo National River in Newton County, south of here. Waterkeeper Alliance groups, however, work in larger mapped ecoregions. For a time, a White River waterkeeper chartered for about a decade monitored and posted water quality data, but it recently dissolved. We rebuilt the board kind of from scratch uh, about a year and a half ago. And this is the first time Arkansas Ozarks waterkeeper has gone public declaring a specific ecoregion. We chose to make the karst geology the um, basis for what we cover. So it's a smaller amount, but with a more common geologic formation that really impacts water quality. Karst is a Slovenia word for subsurface fractured limestone caves, sinkholes, and fissures, which are common on the Ozarks Plateau and through which surface water and pollutants quickly travel. Now the jurisdiction of the new Arkansas Ozarks Waterkeeper is bounded by the White River to the north, Spring River to the east, Mulberry River to the south, and Illinois River to the west. Right now, our main impetus is to staff ourselves with a paid waterkeeper. It's one of the requirements of a waterkeeper organization. And so we are very focused on fundraising so that we can afford to hire a waterkeeper. That fully credentialed waterkeeper will be charged with water quality monitoring, public outreach to industry farmers, businesses, and school groups, and more. And also to be someone that when someone sees something, we, we hope to also have a network of water watchers, people who love their particular waterway and are familiar enough with it that they can notice changes. When something doesn't seem right, they can call and say, I don't know what's going on. The Waterkeeper Alliance counts a constellation of groups self-identified as Bayou Keeper, Creek Keeper, River Keeper, Coast Keeper, operating in bioregions across the world. A Washita River Keeper spans eastern Arkansas and northern Louisiana. Central Missouri has a confluence waterkeeper, and along with three Oklahoma waterkeepers, comprise part of a Gulf Coast region. Glenda Ellison says the Global Waterkeeper Alliance provides member groups with technical support and training. I find it fascinating that the Waterkeeper Organization has many diverse areas and regions all over the world. They're saving the Amazon as well. So we can learn a lot from what other people are doing, and that's what we're striving. I'm honored to have our little area be included in that.
This summer, Arkansas Ozarks Waterkeeper is hosting a first fundraising event coming out, in effect, collaborating with the Kings River Watershed Partnership. A paddle poker run, which will be a family fun event on June 11th. It will be a five-mile paddle, and you will stop at stations and get a a card out of a deck along the way, and at the end you will will see who has the highest hand. It will be a fun day. We'll have games. We'll have food. We're looking forward to it. The Waterkeeper Alliance is accredited by the United Nations Environment Program, the coordinating body for all United Nations regional and international environmental activity. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Quick reminder that any story or interview or piece that you hear on Ozarks at Large, you can hear again. Just go to ozarksatlarge.com and you'll find it there. Also, with each individual story, piece, or interview, you'll find a link that allows you to share that piece with anyone you'd like via social media or email. OzarksAtLarge.com. Also there are uh, complete past editions of our show. And if you ever miss an edition of Ozarks at Large, we have an archive available on the free KUAF app. You can also ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large and hear the most recent daily edition of our show. And finally, you can just listen whenever you want by subscribing or downloading the free KUAF daily Ozarks at Large podcast. It's available wherever you find podcasts. The 2022 Black-Owned Business Expo will take place February 26th from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m. at the Apollo on Emma Avenue in Springdale. Black-Owned Northwest Arkansas, in collaboration with Black Ground Agency, welcomes all supportive members of Northwest Arkansas to attend and support local Black-Owned businesses. If you'd like to know more, you can go online to downtownspringdale.com. Buffalo National River's first weekend of its 50th anniversary celebration is scheduled for this weekend, the 25th, 26th, and 27th. That's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Events include a virtual tour of the Parker-Hickman Homestead, a National River Oral History with StoryCorps, a geological history talk, a Tribal Connections presentation, and more. For more about the Buffalo National River's 50th anniversary, you can go online to nps.gov slash B-U-F-F, or you can always go to Facebook. And the Northwest Arkansas Community College Board of Trustees seeking nominations from the local community for the Honorary Associate Degree Award. This award recognizes community members or individuals associated with NWAC who exemplify outstanding service to the community. Recipients will be recognized during NWAC's commencement ceremony that takes place in May. If you'd like to submit a nomination, nwacc.edu slash honorary degree nomination. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, presenting Little River Band in concert at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs on Saturday, May 7th. A limited number of reserved seat tickets are now available online at tickets.thundertix.com. KUAF is supported by Gotta Hold Brewing, just off Highway 62 West in Eureka Springs. This dog and family-friendly brewery offers a beer forest, weekly live music, and 10 craft beers on tap. Got a hold dot beer for more information. Pleasant Monday to you. This is Ozarks at Large. Walton Art Center's Joy Pratt Markham Gallery is the host of a collection of photographs by Aaron Turner called Yesterday Once More. Turner, a teaching assistant professor at the University of Arkansas's School of Art, 
has turned his camera on images of family, as well as the landscapes of the Arkansas and Mississippi River Delta regions. The images are timeless, a grandparent and grandchild in silhouette, or the land of the Delta. And these images appear as if they could have been captured on film last week or years ago. Last week, we reached Aaron Turner by phone and asked him about his work and about how he curates all of those images into a solo exhibition. It's not easy, that's for sure. Uh, I know for this show in particular, for this exhibition, I probably spent about two and a half weeks really thinking um, about which images that I wanted to include. And that's a part of that process is thinking back to when I first showed the work. It was in a solo exhibition in New Jersey at Mercer County Community College. And I showed about 30 framed images, I believe, about 25, 30 framed images. Um, that was back around maybe 2016, I think. And so I've made many more photos now. Uh, some of those images are included in the one um, that's at Walton Art Center right now. So and then I think about all the different group exhibitions that I've had. Um, so I think about what has been shown, what hasn't been shown. And then I start thinking about the context. Okay, what's the specific narrative or um, how am I specifically trying to tie everything together in, in this particular space at this particular time? How am I feeling? What am I thinking about? What are my influences at the time? And so I'm probably jumping a little bit ahead, but um, a lot of the music that I have included in the show uh, is what I listen to as I edit and reflect on the images. Um, and then uh, in the exhibition, I have this book, of ta this table of books, excuse me, um, which kind of details some of my specific influences, whether that's on the style in which I shoot, uh, my photographs or the style in which I install the show. Um, and then also some of the books just kind of reflect um, things like uh, regional senses, um, aesthetic senses, like some of these other artists in the books are making images in the South as well. So it's kind of like a little bit of a, what I call a discursive enterprise, um, like how things like relate to one another that are similar. Um, and in this specific context, it'll be like other photographers, other artists, uh, make it work in the South. Um, so that's, that's how I self-curate. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It doesn't sound like an easy process, or at least it doesn't sound like a brief one. Um, I love that you have music and books with the work. And I'm thinking that one of the things, especially in a gallery like Joy Pratt Gallery, where, where you might be getting some people who are going to go to a show and, oh, what is this? And there is a tendency for those of us sometimes who tour these exhibits to, you know, look at our watch, you know, I got to be somewhere and we don't have the time we want. And I'm wondering if music and books is a way to try to make us slow down as we're experiencing this exhibit. Oh, yes, it absolutely is. Um, because sometimes, you, like you said, you do, uh, we're, society is moving so fast today um, and we, we rarely slow down for anything because most things for us are convenient, you know, myself included. I, I find myself running around um, and not slowing down sometimes. So uh, I hope that when people enter the space and you you can, you know, that gesture of stopping to scroll through a playlist and listen intently and look and then to scroll to also listen actively to a playlist but also sit there and take time to flip through a book. 
So I'm kind of inserting these activities um, that we usually do on the go. So that kind of adds a little bit of familiarity. Uh, usually most people carry around headphones with them or most people are used to QR codes, which is how you access the playlist in the space. Um, and then everyone loves books. I don't know anyone who doesn't love books. I'm an I'm a avid book collector, specifically art books and um, classic uh, literature. Uh, so in poetry too. So um, I, I think everyone can kind of relate to music. Uh, music kind of has these, um, what you call, uh, uh, in a cliche way, I could say music passes all understanding and kind of can bring people together. And maybe books can sort of act as the same way. Uh, they're kind of like these little hidden treasures. Uh, and if you open it up and look through it, you'll expose yourself to something you never thought you would. And that could change your outlook on the day, um, the outlook of your year. I mean, just the outlook of your whole life moving forward. So I'm just trying to expose people to music and books that I enjoy and then also pair that with like a visual um, element. So it's trying to create like a immersive environment, um, activate some of your senses, that kind of thing. But definitely, as you said, the, the key point is to kind of just slow down a little bit. Um, and then also ref it, through the pictures that I have in the exhibition, I kind of want people to see themselves through it. I want people to reflect on their own family, their own hometown through it as well. Well, what I love, this is called Yesterday Once More, and the images <laughs> of family and landscape, I mean, many of them could have been taken yesterday or mm -hmm. 75 years ago. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. a grandparent with a grandchild, that's universal. And, and the land of the of the Delta region, I mean, I'm sure you might recognize if you're from their buildings or something like that. But but there is a timelessness to that. And I think that was intentional on your part. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, that title yesterday once more came from uh, a, a friend visited me um, after I had I, I did graduate school at Rutgers and I finished my degree, I moved back home and was trying to stay, but I ended up moving back up to the New York area afterwards. But I was really trying to stay in the Arkansas region and continue that work um, at the time. Um, and fortunately, I was able to come back and be at the University of Arkansas. <laughs> but um, I was photographing the Arkansas Delta region when a friend stopped through on a road trip. We went out together to make pictures. He was actually one of my former uh, classmates. Um, and so we met back up and we saw this sign that was falling apart and the sign said yesterday once more. And I, I have to go back and make that picture. Uh, we saw it in the town of Park in Arkansas. I hope it's still up. Hopefully no one's torn it down or anything like that. But that's where we saw that sign. And I, I just I was like, I'm going to rename my project because I used to just call it Arkansas Delta or another thing I used to call it was like home, um, the Arkansas Delta. So I had a few variations of the title, but yesterday once more just stuck with me. And, um, I, I don't know, I, I, I assume, uh, you know, as you just live life and you get older, you just go through things. And so a lot of the pictures are of like family funerals, uh, parties, gatherings, um, my nieces and nephews are in there. So it's just like, I've seen life. Um, I've seen people that I've grown up with not here anymore. And then I've also seen new life coming to the world. I think we can all sort of relate to that. So um, 
you know, my grandfather, uh, my mother's dad is no longer living. And, um, you know, that title yesterday once more, just like, I wish I could have him here uh, one more day. And that, and that goes for like, you know, everyone that I've lost. Uh, and I think that goes for uh, a majority of uh, everyone, uh, for everyone else that is not here anymore. So it is kind of about longing for things. Um, and I think photography is sort of the perfect medium for that because it can preserve things and it can make things feel timeless. As you mentioned, you can sort of relive and evoke past memories uh, because you, because you've uh, uh, captured a, a specific moment over time uh, through a photograph. So um, yeah, it's, it's totally about reflection, um, trying to understand time and just trying to understand um, at least from my perspective, trying to understand, uh, understand who I am um, in this world, in this vast world that we live. You mentioned that many of these photographs uh, were first exhibited in a solo work in New Jersey. I'm wondering, do you think differently about how you might arrange something that is geographically further from the Arkansas and Mississippi deltas of New Jersey, as opposed to Walton Art Center, which is maybe just a few hours drive? Does that change at all in how you put it together? Uh, pr- yes and no. It, uh, it's, it's all dependent on the timing. Um, I, I always talk to my students about self-awareness. And then I was talking to a friend the other day and they were saying, oh, maybe uh, active awareness is a better way to, to explain what you're saying. Um, like I mentioned earlier, like how, how a lot of my images are about time and um, sort of preserving moments that you want to revisit or even share with others to have like empathetic or mutual understandings with one another. So um, if, if I were to have another show in New Jersey five months from now versus five years from now, it'll probably be two different shows just because of mm-hmm. the life that I've lived up to whatever point that I'm asked to do it. Um, I just really respond to uh, whatever's going on in the moment. Um individually as a, as an artist and then just things that I've gone through. And so specifically around this time for this, this exhibition is just, I was thinking a lot about music and I was thinking a lot about books and I was like, I've never really kind of, I always talk about it when I speak about my work, but it's like, it's a different thing to sort of make it physically present in the work. So even like the, the song playlist and the books that are in the space are kind of like a physical bibliography. Because uh, you can easily just write out the list and tell people, go look at it. But it's different to like make it physical and present in the room. So those are, I've been actually having physical books a part of all of my exhibitions recently. Um, group exhibitions that I've been invited to and, and a few solo exhibitions that I've had um, different places. Aaron Turner is a teaching assistant professor at the School of Art at the University of Arkansas. His photographs in the collection Yesterday Once More can be seen in the Joy Pratt Markham Gallery in the Walton Art Center through April 3rd. The gallery is open Monday through Friday from 10 until 2, as well as 60 minutes prior to performances and during intermissions. And a reminder, all patrons are required to wear masks while inside the Walton Art Center. You can find out more about the exhibit by going to waltonartcenter.org. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A Georgia native made a lasting mark on the care of black children and the training of nurses in Arkansas. 
Leah Lowe was born in 1884, but moved to Arkansas, marrying Mosaic Templars of America official Peach Jordan in 1920. In 1927, she became head nurse of the Mosaic State Templars Hospital, and in the 30s worked with the Arkansas Home and Hospital for Crippled Negro Children in Little Rock. She went so far as to mortgage her own home to keep the 20-bed hospital open, and it did so into the 1950s. Jordan started an innovative training program for nurses at the hospital, allowing young women to work for their room, board, and a small salary so that they could earn their practical nurses' certification. She also worked with the Red Cross in a home nursing class that Jordan taught and that graduated 91 black women. The hospital held a May 12, 1950 celebration of her 40th anniversary as a nurse. She died that September and is buried in Little Rock's Haven of Rest Cemetery. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. Just ahead on this Monday, Ozarks at Large, Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History brings us archives regarding the life and career of Dr. Jocelyn Elders. And tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, we talk about life and career with musician, singer, songwriter, and storyteller John McCutcheon. We talk about songwriting with Tom Paxson via Zoom, about songwriting during the pandemic, and just about songwriting. With this, it's a mysterious kind of uh, what happens next kind of thing. Uh, when you clear all the left brain stuff out of your world and you just sit down, um, I look at some of the, these songs on, on the latest album, Bucket List, and think, I remember what prompted that. It was a truck going by and I heard the gravel crackle underneath this wheel. So I just wrote it down and all of a sudden the story came out, a story I'd never thought about, hadn't planned on, but it was there, and that's what happens. And every writer who's listening to us right now has had that. It could be a thank you note. It could have been a term paper. It could have been an obituary. It could have been a poem. You look at it and you say, wow, I don't know where that came from because I'm not that good. John McCutcheon will be the next speaker in the Tippy McMichael Lecture Series held at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in downtown Fayetteville. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, presenting Little River Band in concert at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs on Saturday, May 7th. A limited number of reserved seat tickets are now available online at tickets.thundertix.com. I still think the major health problem that we have, really even as far as the world is concerned, is related to ignorance. It's education, education, education. And we've got to educate people and teach them how to take care of themselves and how to be healthy. What we just heard was from a 2008 Prior Center interview with Dr. Jocelyn Elders. It is time to talk about Dr. Elders via archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas oral and visual history. And to help us do that is Randy Dixon. Randy, welcome to Ozarks at Large. It's great to be back. I know I was uh, sort of on hiatus for a while. Winter is a good time to take a rest. We did, as you would nicely put, encore (laughs) editions of the Pryor Center, but we're going to be back live. I got in, I think I said in in the last uh, new program that uh, we got 1,800 new 
tapes, hours of footage that I've started going through. When you go through this new footage, do you go, I mean, in real time? You just watch? Well, um, no. I I scrub through, but I also determine we have logs of what might be on on which tapes. They, They don't have full metadata, but there is a log of what's on each tape, whether it's a huge event, which would be an entire tape, or various news stories, which then you would have to go back and look. Well, sound that was not included in those 1,800 hours but got us started is Dr. Jocelyn Elders this week. That's right. I, and I found a lot of material on her. Uh, you know, she was very controversial, mm-hmm. uh, not only in the state of Arkansas, but nationally. And that's kind of what we're going to go into. But as background, she was actually born many Lee Jones in 1933 in Shaw, which is in Howard County, which is in South West. Southwest, okay. Yes, it's down down by Murfreesboro and Texarkana, that area. But uh, she worked in cotton fields and went to a one-room schoolhouse and pulled herself up and ended up uh, getting a scholarship to Flanders Smith College in In Little Rock. Rock. And then... uh, got her medical degree uh, from UAMS. She immediately, uh, upon getting her, her medical license, um, advocated issues uh, regarding adolescent sexuality and particularly uh, teen pregnancy and contraception. And, you know, that, that brought her a lot of attention uh, I guess both good and bad. Right. I mean, she was finally talking about some things that people would not talk about in public that needed to be discussed, I think. That's right. And and this was in the 70s and 80s. So uh, she got to know Bill Clinton very well. And in 1987, he appointed her to head the uh, state health department. She was the director. And with that, she brought... Um, she was very vocal. Right. Um, and as you can tell from this uh, Steve Barnes report from Arkansas PBS, he did this report back in the late 80s when she had just become director of the health department. And uh, here's just a sample. Portrait of a determined woman, a woman demanding we confront some unpleasant facts. We have the highest incidence of teenage pregnancy in this whole nation. To me, that's a public health problem. She is a woman with a special agenda, little patience, and her own timetable. I feel it's time for us to get on with it before we lose a whole generation of young people to a very deadly disease and another generation of young women and have another generation of 12 and 14-year-old parents. And we know what kind of parents they make. You may not like what she says, but she's impossible to ignore. We can't walk out of here and start telling teenagers that are already sexually active to say no. She is Joycelyn Elders. She is the state health director. She won't give up, she won't go away, and she won't back down. I would like to say enough, if we could, to wake up the sleeping giant of middle America that's been sitting there doing nothing for, yay, these many years and letting the 1% 
of people get their way while they sit and become totally unresponsive and watch their youngsters being continually wasted. And I'm angry. So that's from 1987, from Steve Barnes. Yes. And after that, she began to establish public school health clinics. And at that time, she distributed condoms and promoted awareness of AIDS and teen pregnancy. So... Well, okay. I mean, in 35 years ago in Arkansas, this was, um, you know, these were lightning topics. Oh, exactly. And and really rankled the uh, the conservatives. And so they accused her or I guess accused uh, sure. of, of promoting abortion, which she always denied. But um, here's an anti-abortionist, which at the time calling right to life, right? Um, which in news we— Right. I mean the— We never used that expression. No, the Associated Press style book says it is anti-abortion. Right. And it is—and um, those who back uh, women's productive, reproductive rights would be called pro-choice. And that's the AP style right. book. Yeah. Abortion rights right. or pro-choice. Right. Uh, and that's just uh, without using uh, a PR— Slant, right. I, I guess, to your title. But um, here is a, an anti-abortionist, right to life, or attacking the clinics in the schools, and after that will be uh, Jocelyn Elder's response. Arkansas Right to Life believes that school nurses, superintendents, and parents should be alerted to this future action because their rights could be jeopardized. Okay. Well, they, they had a feeling to say we can do this and that. There is no... You know, there's no way that the health department could go to any school and perform any services without the permission of the school district or someone in that school district. She also discussed abstinence. Yes. As, as a, a way a, to not get have teen pregnancy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, as a form of contraception. Right. Basically. And, you know, still uh, certain legislators... Uh, opposed the proposal of the health clinics in the public schools. It really bothered them. When we reach a crisis proportion in our state, I think it's time for us to start looking at ways to prevent the problem which we're seeing. The only place that the children we're talking about go is school. It is, in effect, waving to our teenagers the white flag of surrender and saying that while we may talk about the value of abstinence and waiting till marriage, that in effect we are saying by our actions and by putting these clinics in the schools that increased teenage sexual activity is both inevitable and irreversible. What Dr. Elders was wanting to do was really sort of elevate the amount of discussion surrounding these, these issues. Yeah, that's the bottom line is awareness of all of these problems that we've been talking about all this time uh, just right here. And there are quite a list of them that we've brought up right now. But um, here she is talking about the importance of the awareness. The first thing you do, you have to make the community aware of the problem. And I think we've definitely increased the awareness of this problem. And I have always felt that when Arkansans recognize they have a problem, 
they will respond and do what they need to do to solve it. Up to this point, Dr. Elders is pretty much known in Arkansas, maybe professionally in medical circles. She was well-published. She had many articles that were out and spoke around the country about this. But as far as being a household name, primarily at this point, Arkansas, but it's going to change. Exactly. So Bill Clinton wins the presidency in November of 92, and immediately, because I remember when this happened, he set up an office in downtown Little Rock, right around the corner from KATV, our television station, and they immediately started work on a transition team and uh, a cabinet appointments. And so Clinton held a news conference downtown Little Rock, and this is how he introduced his friend, Dr. Elders. The Surgeon General watches after America's health. This physician best serves when he or she tells the truth to the American people, whether it's about the dangers of smoking or the spread of AIDS. The current Surgeon General, Antonia Novello, has, in my judgment, served this nation very well in her job. I am grateful for her service and for the fact that she will continue to serve as Surgeon General until June and thereafter will serve in the nation's public health service. And so this is, gosh, this is the early 90s. And at this point... Yeah, this is uh, probably late. November of 92, December of 93. Yeah. De- December... Uh, January, of yes. 93, as he's putting the transition team together. Right. At this point, which to me doesn't seem that long ago, Dr. Elders would have only been the second African-American appointed to a cabinet-level position. That's right. In the history of the United States up to that point. That's right. Wow. Uh-huh. And this is how she came to the podium. Right after the president-elect introduced her, she came to the podium, and this is Dr. Elders. President-elect Clinton, vice president-elect Gore, I'm pleased to have been chosen as a member of your team to help affect change in America. During the past five years, I've been honored to serve President-elect Clinton as his health director in the state of Arkansas. I would like to extend my gratitude to him for this honor, for being able to do this, and the many opportunities which I've had. As you pointed out, not confirmed because you have to be confirmed by the Senate. Well, that's where it always gets a little dicey. Uh, You have the confirmation hearings and... Uh, this was before the Senate Labor and Human Resources Committee. And, uh, you know, there were plenty of Republicans on there. So, you know, there's going to be some opposition, especially since uh, she was a bit controversial or mm-hmm. a lot controversial. But she did have friends, especially all the Democrats. But there was a personal friend who came over from the House uh, to introduce her. Uh, to the committee, and that was Congressman Blanche Lambert, who we later became knew as Senator Blanche Lincoln. Right. Uh, oh, Blanche, Blanche Lambert, Lincoln. Yeah. yeah. Blanche Lambert Lincoln. Lincoln. And then just dropped the, just like John Cougar Mellencamp, I guess. <laughs> right. You just go from, you just drop the, right. the original. So anyway, uh, this is the congressman introducing uh, the nominee. It is my distinct honor to be here today to introduce to you Dr. Jocelyn Elders, uh, President Clinton's nominee for the U.S. Surgeon General, 
And I do believe I come to you from probably a different avenue, along with Senator Pryor and Senator Bumpers. Um, I have direct results of the efforts of Dr. Elders in my district. And as you mentioned, there was opposition. It's, it, it's hard to think that one party can put up a cabinet-level person in 2022 without pushback from the other side. It wasn't as common in the 90s, but, it, but here there was pushback. There was, but it was very polite. It, it wasn't uh, contentious. Right. Uh, they, they just weren't mean about it. They were very polite. Uh, but the conservatives did bring to the table opposition uh, to her nomination. So she was questioned, among other things, about the effectiveness of the clinics because at one point there was an incident where defective condoms right. uh, were passed out. They recalled them, but she never really brought it up uh, to the state government. Yeah. Uh, she, she didn't fess up right away. Uh, they even looked into her financial uh you know, personal finances, and it had to do with uh, a caregiver for oh, her husband's yes, yes. mother right. uh, who was living with them. But anyway, um, again, she was questioned about her attitude uh, uh, about the anti-abortionists, and this came from Indiana Republican Senator Daniel Coates. In Arkansas, you know, I don't know what they do in your state. But what they do is they fight against health education. They fight against welfare. They fight against Medicaid. And, and, but they you know, always want to have you know, the children born. But they do not want to support children after they're here. And you know, that was probably where the love affair with the fetus may have come in, because I looked on it as an affair. You know, that's a short-term commitment. Whereas with children, that's forever. That's a very long-term commitment. And in my state, I have not seen them out working for programs to help poor mothers. And if we had a society where everybody was provided health care, a decent place to live, and adequate education, then, Senator, we would be taking care of all people. But in Arkansas, in my state, I don't see these kinds of commitments. There were U.S. senators under, not surprisingly, from the other side of the aisle who offered public support. Well, almost like a love fest. <laughs> it was, uh, well, listen to this. Uh, this is Democratic Senator Howard Metzenbaum of Ohio, and he basically gushes and welcomes her to the new job that she didn't quite have yet. Are you capable of being Surgeon General of the United States? Now, get some of the people who have spoken out for you and to read about your record. I, I never had the privilege of meeting you before, but I have the feeling that if I didn't vote for you, I might feel the same way I felt about Dr. C. Everett Koop. I didn't vote for him. I made a mistake. And, and I don't intend to make that mistake, and I hope this committee and this Senate doesn't make that mistake. You're an unbelievably, unbelievably capable, aggressive, aggressive woman. And I think that that's what we need in fighting some of the problems in this country. The whole problem of children and HIV-AIDS 
isn't going to just take a passive attitude. It's not going to be as kind of a subject that's going to get solved itself. The problem of children's pregnancy, incredible. Now, whether you made great progress or you didn't make great progress, everybody has to stand up and salute you for having made the effort. There are some things that you can't do that much with. And then I read some articles in the paper about uh, the availability of condoms and the fact that some of the condoms were defective and whether you should have gone public or shouldn't have. I don't know. Maybe you should have. I'm not sure. But I'm interested in the health of the people of this country. And for myself, I'm satisfied that you're, you're, you're a breath of fresh air. You're going to come in and do that job. You're going to get confirmed. And you're going to get confirmed by an overwhelming vote. And, and I think you're going to do a fantastic job for the health care needs of this country. She does get confirmed, and, and, and not by a small margin. It's two-thirds. That's true, 65 to 34. And it was a pretty heated confirmation process. But she did get it, and as Surgeon General, she quickly gained that national reputation of being controversial, which she already had in Arkansas. She had great you know, opposition from conservatives that didn't want to hear about it. Right. Uh, because, you know, she was talking about topics like she had. We all knew about it in Arkansas, but this was now a national platform that she was talking about human sexuality and abortion and contraceptives in school. She even hit this button. Masturbation. And drug legalization. Well, right. But it's see, but looking back... The, the one topic that she would talk about that seemed to f- freak everybody out was masturbation. Yes. And, I mean, wow. And, and she was warned by the White House to just kind of cool it a little <laughs> right, bit. Right. Well, she's invited to the United Nations to talk about um, AIDS. And the question of masturbation came up. Right. And this was the final straw. There was never a news conference called about it, but she was asked to resign. She was yeah. fired. And so this is a breaking news clip from C-SPAN. We're going to spend a few moments turning our attention to uh, one of the uh, breaking developments that took place uh, this afternoon here in Washington. The uh, resignation of Joyce Lynn Elders, the uh, Surgeon General who has been in that post since uh, uh, for the past year and a half or two years. She is from Arkansas, served in the Clinton administration when uh, Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas. One of the reporters who worked on that story is Jim Popkin of U.S. News and World Report. Jim Popkin, thanks for being with us. What happened today? Well, today, uh, Joycelyn Eller's got the bad news that she's been bracing herself for for 15 months now. Um, All these comments that she's made, off-the-cuff comments, finally caught up with her, and the White House just basically had had enough, and and they asked for her resignation today. Leon Panetta, the White House Chief of Staff, said it was one comment too many. What did she say? Well, I was there. um, She made some comments December 1st. It was World AIDS Day at the United Nations. And in front of 200 people, a psychologist affiliated with the UN asked her a question about masturbation, specifically asked her, would you consider promoting masturbation in schools as a way to discourage kids from trying more uh, dangerous sexual behavior? And I was sitting there thinking, this is one of the questions that the White House has cautioned her three times now uh, not to get into, to stay on message. 
She'd been cautioned, as a matter of fact, just two days prior to this uh, speech to stay on message and stay with the safe themes that she's, some of the safe themes that she's talked about, but she just leapt right in. And she said that, yes, she thought that probably kids should be taught uh, masturbation in schools as a way to deter them from sexual behavior that would lead to AIDS. If I recall, Randy, she had not been Surgeon General for a relatively long amount of time. Just over a year. Okay, 15 yeah. months, yeah. I believe. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it didn't take very long. Yeah. All right, so she's not Surgeon General anymore. Yeah, so what now? Yeah. Um, this next clip is from that 2008 interview we did with her, and she's wondering what she's going to do, and she keeps referring to she talked to Coach. Well, that's her husband, and he was a well-known Arkansan in his own right, mm -hmm. Coach Oliver Elders. Um, shoot, he was he was a coach at Parkview in Little Rock, but he was also coach at Hall High School when I went there. And one of my classmates was Sidney Moncrief, and so he was the coach ah. for Super Sid, and uh, was always a great. Coach, and he was Hall of Fame, Arkansas Hall of Fame coach, but was a great supporter of his wife, moved to D.C. with her. And uh, here's how she describes her conversation with her husband, Coach. Coach has been perhaps the most wonderful, tolerant person. And, you know, and I say tolerant because you have to know that I went through some difficult days as after the Surgeon General, and it was Coach who said we we was talking about what we were going to do, and they was going to give me a different job and blah. And so Coach said, you know, we were sitting there one, one about three o'clock in the morning, one morning at Washington, and he looked over at me and he said, "Shoo, why don't we just go home?" I said, "Wonderful," and. That was the decision we made, and I want you to know, I've never, never thought about anything different. She's back. I mean, she came back to Arkansas. Yeah, and taught yeah. for years at UAMS. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Put Pryor Center into a search engine. You'll find all sorts of things. Randy, welcome back. Good to have you back. Thank you. It's great to be here. Listen up, teachers. The spring semester is back in session. And if your students have something to say, NPR wants to hear it. It's time again for the Student Podcast Challenge. Podcasts can be anything from a class project to students' perspectives on an event in the school or community. The contest is for middle and high school students, and it's open now through March 21st. All students need is the help of a teacher like you. For details, rules, and past contest winners, go to studentpodcastchallenge.npr.org. Did you know KUAF provides 24 hours a day of classical music on KUAF2? You can get KUAF2 for free in a variety of ways. You can ask your smart speaker to please play KUAF2. You can tune it in on your HD radio at home or in your car. You can go to KUAF.com and find the KUAF2 free stream or just download the free KUAF app and listen that way. Do you want a great way to support KUAF and the programming you depend on? A car donation makes it easy to do your part and give public radio your support. KUAF works with cars. 
charitable adult rides and services to provide you with this unique way to support your public radio station. We accept almost any vehicle, running or not, including cars, trucks, motorcycles, and other motorized vehicles. Your vehicle will be picked up for free and at your convenience. For more information about KUAF's vehicle donation program, send an email to member at KUAF.com. And thanks. This is 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Eureka Springs. 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. You can always find out more about us at KUAF.com. You can always listen to us wherever you are by using the free KUAF app. Today's show, produced by Timothy Dennis. Contributors this Monday included Jacqueline Froelich, and Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Additional assistance putting this show together from Rachel Sanchez-Smith. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 for a brand new Tuesday edition of Ozarks at Large. As we mentioned before, John McCutcheon will be with us talking about his career, 50 years of singing, songwriting, and storytelling. He'll be in Fayetteville this weekend. Also tomorrow, John Brummett will be talking with Roby Brock about the fiscal session underway at the state capitol. And we'll hear again from our militant grammarian. That's all tomorrow at noon and 7 on KUAF and via podcast for free through any major podcast distributor. Thanks so much for being with us on this Monday. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellams. Take care of yourself. We'll talk again soon.